If hearing this episode is distressing for you, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Shot them by my step. You would shoot them? Yes, sure. Why? Because my husband did. And uh, my son lost their good future. Nilu Erniati's husband was among 202 people killed in the Bali bombings on the 12th of October 2002. She's among thousands who were caught in the shockwaves of this horrific event and who began to look for some answers. I'm Ali Donaldson and this is episode two of Shockwaves, the Bali Bombings, the hunt for the bombers. In this episode, you'll hear two stories that intertwine. The first follows the global investigation to bring the perpetrators to justice. How they were caught was extraordinary. And the second is about the unlikely twists on the terror trail, which saw some turn what was meant to be a path to hatred into a path to happiness. This story starts in Canberra, Australia. It's early Sunday morning, just hours after the bombs have gone off, outside the Sari Club in Bali. 20 years ago, I was attached to the, the counter-terrorism area of the Australian Federal Police. Um, and I was there when the Bali bombing occurred in October of 2002. This is the first time Andy Thorpe has ever spoken publicly about that day. Probably got the first phone call about half past four or five o'clock in the morning. And I'd been advised that there'd been some bombs go off in Bali and that the major incident room uh, in AFP was being established. The commissioner was uh, in in at the office and others, but they put together a team to fly to Bali uh, leaving that afternoon, and I was tasked to go to all of the hospitals in Bali uh, to see if there were any Australians or New New Zealanders in those hospitals. Um, that required medivacking back to Australia. One of the Australians Andy runs into at Sangla Hospital is Simon Quayle. OK, I first met Simon at the mortuary. We met Simon in our first episode. He was the coach of the Kingsley Cats footy team, partying in the Sari Club when the bombs went off. 24 hours later, Simon hasn't stopped looking for his missing teammates. There, there were no, notice boards up uh, that had lists of missing people. I went over to have a look at those and Simon came over uh, with some other members of the Kingsley Cats football club. That's the first conversation I had with him and I said, you were in the uh, Sari club when the bomb detonated. We need to start documenting Um, your story and getting his statement from you. Over time, Andy would become like family to Simon. In many ways, he helped save his life. But just as critically in those first few days, Andy and his AFP colleagues were building close ties with the Indonesian police in the hunt for the bombers. The important part 
was that um, we ended up working with the Indonesian National Police and that service had not long um, separated from the military over there, became its own entity. On the Friday after the bombing there was a, a joint investigation agreement signed. It was an agreement that it would be a joint investigation between the Indonesian police and the Australian Federal Police. And within just days, they were on the bombers' tails. The uh, first major breakthrough came from um, one of the INP forensics um, personnel found a, a vehicle identification um, stamp in one of the components of the vehicle that was used to carry the bomb at the Surrey Club. Those responsible for the terror strike thought they'd covered their tracks. Whilst they'd uh, ground off all the other numbers so they couldn't be identified, this was under another piece of metal then welded on there and it was a, a local number stamped by Denpasar motor vehicle registry for vehicles that are used for commercial purposes. So the, the van that was used with the bomb had once been owned by a hotel there, so they'd had this particular number stamped in it, and it was traceable through that number when they'd actually um, pulled off this bit of metal that had been welded over to give the thing extra strength, I think, at the time. So, yeah, that led to um, uh, Am Rosie's arrest, I think, um, over in, in East Java. And uh, it sort of just flowed on from there. Ali Am Rosie was responsible for supplying the van for the bombing. Also key to the attacks were his brothers, Ali Imron and Ali Gifron, who was better known as Muklas. The three brothers were part of a jihadist group based in Southeast Asia called Jamaa Islamiyah, with links to Al-Qaeda. Their arrests led to a chain reaction of others, over 30 people. But this is where things get a little tricky for Andy to talk about. Listen, I can't go into detail uh, about the investigation itself uh, because there's some sensitive things that... Um, uh, sensitive information that uh, uh, I, I obviously can't talk about. Uh, but I can say that the... Indonesian police uh, were fully committed to finding the people responsible. Now you have to remember, September 11 was fresh in everyone's minds. Right, oh my God, another plane has just hit, it hit another building, flew right into the middle. The world was still reeling from their strikes on the World Trade Towers in New York the year before. When Bali was hit, people from 21 different nations were killed and Indonesia needed help. The Australian Federal Police was one of the agencies dealing with these threats, so it was well equipped to respond and more than dedicated. In all, more than 500 Australians would work under the lead of the Indonesian police, tracking down the bombers. It was a good mix of, uh, you know, forensics and technical, and I'd like to reiterate how good the Indonesian National Police were, how uh, committed they were to actually, you know, finding the perpetrators. There are friends now that I'd, well, some of them may have retired now, but 
at the time we were considered to be their brothers, you know. So, so that's, that's what won the day, the relationships. That was Andy. These are the shockwaves I'm really interested in, not just the physical ones that cause damage stretching for kilometres, but those that spread out over time that can be positive. When foreign police forces cooperated to fight terror on the ground in Bali, their actions would reverberate on the global stage. Yeah, I heard Condoleezza Rice, the US Secretary of State, uh, on on the uh, TV um, talking about the improved relationship between the United States and Indonesia. And quietly I was thinking to myself, well, that was built on the back of better relationship between Australia and Indonesia um, following the Bali bombings, and that relationship was built on the relationship between the uh, AFP and the Indonesian National Police. In those first few weeks, nothing was as it should be in Bali. The whole atmosphere was, you know, traumatic, really. The, the impact of the actual bombing went beyond the psychological and the actual injuries that were caused at the time. It sort of certainly started biting uh, economically for the locals. It was a tragedy to see them struggling to survive, really, with no tourists in, in the place. And who was left? Well... A lot of really heavily grieving people, investigative teams and journalists like me. I filed this report from outside the Surrey Club the day after the bomb. These streets have never been so quiet. Indonesian authorities keeping a solemn vigil here until investigation teams arrive. There's word American FBI agents may even be on their way. That next day, a call comes through to the Bounty Hotel reception desk in Kuta. It's a woman from Bendigo in Victoria. She's desperately trying to find her family member staying at the hotel. Here's Andy again. That day was the day, the Monday I'd been to all of the hospitals. And when she rang, I was standing at the front desk of the Bounty Hotel and I asked the, the staff there, have you got these people on the missing list? And they said yes. And they told me uh, where... Uh, they'd been staying, then the room was, I could see the, the door of the room from where I was standing, and they told me that the, the two girls had left uh, on the Saturday night at seven o'clock and hadn't come back. When the lady rang the hotel and I got put onto me, uh, I was the only person who could really answer her queries at the time. If they were being medevaced, someone in the family would have been contacted and that I'd been to the mortuary and there were a lot of bodies there. Um, so she should be expecting probably some bad news. She couldn't believe that I was able to say that and I could tell her that the stuff was still in the room, that all the girls' belongings were in the room still. She was grateful that I was able to tell her that and not sugarcoat it. To know was a relief. Andy recalls another strange twist of fate that surprised everyone. I remember there was a credit card that was found in the ruins of the Sari Club and we thought that we traced it belonged to a New Zealand national and we thought that um, this might have been one of the victims of the bombing. But uh, 
we traced him back to New Zealand and he was alive and uh, apparently had lost the credit card in the Surrey Club some months earlier. So uh, that's a, a good news story. <laughs> uh, when there weren't too many of them, I'm afraid. <laughs> For many, the focus shifted to getting justice. But justice isn't the same for everybody, and neither is the road to recovery. Everyone's journey takes its own shape, and that's especially true for a woman called Nilu, who we heard from at the top of this episode. My name is Nilu Erniati. I met Nilu Erniati at her home on the outskirts of Denpasar when I travelled back to Bali this year. Nilo used to work at the Sari Club. It's where she met and fell in love with her husband, G'day. He was there working as a barman on the night of the bombings and never came home. My husband was working in Sari Club and he died in 2002 in Sari Club. I miss him very much. Nilu lost her husband their boys, then aged one and nine years old, lost their dad. He was uh, still younger when he died. It took Nilu months to even find her husband's body. She would travel every day from her village to Sangla Hospital, where the remains of hundreds of victims had been taken, trying to find him. Yes, uh, I, I find the body uh, in four months. After bomb, four months and yes, four months, and I just find seventy percent of body. So seventy percent of your yeah. husband. What did you find? Um, just just a half of body without head, without hand, and without foot. I can I can uh, believe yeah, it is his body, but my heart says yes. It is his husband. Nilu had no money. It would be years before she could afford to pay for a proper burial ceremony. She only could, thanks to the kindness of an Australian couple who donated sewing machines to the widows in Bali. David and Moira from Australia, his uh, husband and wife from Australia, he helped me here in Bali uh, with uh, bring sewing machine for me. But as she repaired the fabric of her life one stitch at a time, in Nilu's heart the pain was growing. And when the three brothers who made the bombs that killed her husband went on trial, she made sure she was there, yelling out in court. Sitting with Nilu recently in her tiny courtyard, she repeats in English what she said then. I want the government to give the death punishment. The death punishment yes, for the, the bombers? death punishment for the bombers. If I can, I will do short with my child. You will shoot them yourself? Yes, sure. Nilu is telling me she's a mum wanting to be a killer. And as she says this, I have to say it's shocking. She holds up her hand like a gun and does a shooting gesture just to be sure I understand. Her boys are grown up now, so it's just us. 
and the soft chatter of her pet lovebird in a bamboo cage above our heads. She has a soft aura to her. Her smile barely leaves her face and it's a kind smile, but her loss had darkened her. I want to shoot them by myself. You would shoot them? Yes, sure. Why? Because uh, my husband dead because them and my son, they lost their good future. Their future? Yeah. Nilu's outburst in court did hit home with one of the bombers, Ali Imron. He broke down in tears and begged forgiveness and showing remorse spared him the death penalty. Ali Imran has abandoned his traditional Muslim dress and turned his back on his co-accused. It has seen him testify against his older brothers, Amrozi and Muklas, as well as other key... His brothers, though, remained unrepentant. Muklas and Amrozi, he's nicknamed the smiling assassin, they'd later die in front of a firing squad. Ali Imran is now serving life behind bars. In an intriguing twist, he has another brother, Ali Fauzi. Now, he brags to the media that he can make a bomb in five minutes, but he's always denied involvement in the Bali attacks. This is when their lives and Nilu's would take a dramatic turn. This is when she would meet the men behind the terror. I met Ali Imran, Ali Fauzi and others. And uh, why I met them, because I want to ask them why he did and why in Bali. After meeting Ali Imran and Ali Fauzi, Nilu forgives them. She believes in God and says if God can forgive, so too could she. Because if I'm hungry every day, all the time, I feel sick. So if you're angry, you'll feel sick? Yes. Letting her anger go was personally healing, but then so much more. It was this turn that took her off a path to hatred onto a path to happiness. I went with her to a Balinese school visiting primary students where she teaches tolerance and peace. When it's COVID safe, Nilu tours schools with Ali Fauzi, who turned his back on his radical views after meeting terror survivors. His new mission is to stop children being recruited by militant groups. Together, Ali and Nilu teach new generations about the bombings, the heartbreaking loss and the power of forgiveness. The importance of breaking the cycle of vengeance. Uh, selamat pagi anak-anak semua. Pagi. Saya tadi ini nah, I talk with the school kid uh, about the peace, about what I feel of, uh, to be victim, and I hope they will know what they want have to do, not to be victim like me. and the former militant met through a very special program, Alliance for a Peaceful Indonesia. It brings together victims of terror and the perpetrators, hoping they may one day spread messages of peace instead of hate. What do you think about 
the bombers like Ali Fauzi and Ali Imran now no. that you've forgiven them, are they better people? Yes, um, I think they're better people, people now. They've so far visited more than 150 schools. Growing up, Ali Fauzi and his brothers were taught radical views. Fauzi now says it's easy to recruit. You only have to pull a trigger. To de-radicalise takes time. I feel better now uh, after I can uh, forgive them. And uh, I will tell the younger people to do the same like me. So the world will be peace. Nilu has spoken to more than 8,000 students, but the most important children in her life have been her own, and her message of forgiveness has brought them happiness. Back at Nilu's house, you're in for a surprise. Her eldest son unexpectedly drops in, taking a break from working in one of Bali's hospitals. Nilu's put her boys through uni, but personally, she's taught them so much more invaluable life lessons the future their father would have wanted. Uh, we hope no more bomb in the world. It could have easily gone the other way. Her own grieving children could have followed a path of revenge and hatred, but instead they're happy and they're helping others to heal in the hospitals that 20 years ago were so overwhelmed and ill-equipped to deal with the tragedy. In the next episode of Shockwave's The Bali Bombings, you'll hear from the carers, those on the front lines, in the hospitals, in the hours and days after the bombings, the extraordinary effort to save lives, the unbelievable twists and turns from that night that are still saving lives today. This was significant injuries in significant numbers. So we knew very early on that we had to action the disaster plan. Have you ever lived through a time where everybody says yes, where everybody does their best and is just falling over themselves to do more? Shockwaves, the Bali bombings, is a co-production between Network 10 and Listener. Hosted, written, researched and produced by me, Ali Donaldson. Script editing by Jennifer Goggin and Jake Morecambe. Sound design and audio production by Dave Stein. Audio recordists, Owen Wynn, Ben Patrick, Nathan Hill, Jake Staunton and Carl Carousella. Ali Aitken is the podcast content partnership manager for Network 10. Melanie Withnall is head of news and information at Listener. If hearing this episode is distressing for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14.